Johnny Burke from MSG Networks in the New York Islanders, and you're listening to the Tomahawk Roundup. All right, so what is going on, guys? This is Frank Zorowski here with the Tomahawk Roundup, and I am joined by the voice of the New York Islanders, Brendan Burke. Brendan, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Frank. Yeah, really excited to have you on, have another uh, broadcaster on the show. It's always great to have another voice of another NHL team on. So starting out early in your career, you were the youngest broadcaster in the ECHL at age 22 with the Wheeling Nailers. How did that opportunity come about, and what did you learn from it at such a young age? Yeah, uh, you know, it was it was an interesting time where um, I, had, uh, I had just graduated from school, and I had done a, a short-season stint in minor league baseball. Uh, and then I was I was done. I was out of a job, and it was just a seasonal position. And I was headed back home to work in the movie theater that I had worked at as a, you know in high school and in college as a uh, um, you know just earn some extra money. And uh, you know I had sent my my demo reel that I had compiled while I was in college. I went to Ithaca College and had a lot of opportunity to uh, to, to broadcast in college. And so I had sent my stuff uh, all over professional hockey and mostly heard nothing. Got a few no's, but mostly nothing. Um, and little did I know that um, at the last minute, the Nail- Wheeling Nailers broadcaster left and opened up the position very late, very close to the start of the season. And because I had sent my stuff preemptively to almost every team, regardless of whether they had an opening or not, uh, my stuff was already on their desk when they had an opening. And they, they liked it enough to, uh, to, to call me and interview me, and eventually I got the job and um, wound up getting there. Uh, I think I was in Wheeling less than 24 hours before I got on the bus for the first game in Charlotte that night. So um, it was uh, it was quite a wild time, and I, and I learned a lot. I mean, you really can't understand what the job entails until you actually have it. And so to be able to get a job not only in professional hockey and as a full-time position right out of school, uh, but to get it at the ECHL level, which is which is you know it's double A hockey. It's a, it's a decently high level when you're in terms of you know coming out of college. So. I was able to get to that level pretty quickly and, and kind of get my feet wet and learn um, the ins and outs of the job and learn how to become a better broadcaster. And part of that was going through a, a team, uh, a season where the team didn't win a whole lot of games, which is not fun to go through, but I think at the end of the day makes you a better broadcaster. And um, it, it, it certainly is, is a big part of my story was getting that break in wheeling. And that's that's incredible, just that you were, your materials were in the right place at the right time. You you took the initiative and you, you sent everything out to basically everyone in NHL and ECHL, AHL hockey. And it's it's really remarkable. Like how does how do you even bro, how do you go about broadcasting with a team that isn't winning a lot? Like what can we what can we take away from that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the easiest thing in broadcasting is to have a game with a lot of uh, a lot of meaning behind it, where you've got two teams and they're both fighting for the same playoff spot, where these points will do X, Y, and Z. I mean, that's the easy ones. That's the one where the games take care of itself. Playoff games are perfect. The, the game is the story. You don't need anything else other than what's on the ice to, to pull off a great product. When the team's losing and you know at Thanksgiving that you are out of the playoff spot and there's really no hope of your season meaning anything in terms of the grand picture of winning a championship, then you've got to bring something else. You've got to bring more entertainment. You've got to bring more stories. You have to make, you have to give your listeners a reason to listen that has nothing to do with the outcome of the game. And so if you approach it that way, um, you know, you prepare differently and you bring up different topics and um, it just makes you think about a game in a different perspective. And then when you have some of those games where the game is the story, if you still prepare those same ways, you know, then you can have a really interesting product where you're prepared for if it's a blowout, you can still make an interesting game. So um, it's one of those experiences, again, not fun to go through. You'd much rather have a team go on an 18-game winning streak than an 18-game losing streak. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, you might be better off for it 
the end of the day. Right, and that and that makes so much sense. The preparation is something that I pride myself on. I know a lot of broadcasters have pride themselves on is the the prep work that goes into the things. So shifting gears uh, now to your American League time, uh, we cover all sorts of Chicago hockey here, including the Chicago Wolves. Before they moved to Utica, uh, you were with the Peoria Rivermen. I mean, tell us about the rivalry between the Rivermen and the Wolves from an opposing broadcast perspective. Uh, you know, the AHL is interesting, and, and, and minor league sports are interesting in general just because of the the, the, uh, the frequency in which you play opponents. And so uh, everybody's a rival when it comes to, you know, certain aspects of minor league sports where, um, you know, you're, we're kind of seeing it now in the NHL where you're playing a team eight times a year. I, I think the uh, I think the Rivermen played, you know, Chicago and Rockford and Milwaukee about 12 times a year, every year. And so... Um, I remember playing the Rivermen playing Rockford six times in October one year. Oh, whoa! Uh, I mean, it was just it, it was you know you start to see that. And that I think there were some preseason games that didn't even count in those first six of October. So um, you, you just kind of get that rivalry going between those teams and the close proximity. Um, you know, and it's uh, it was that it was the Atlanta Thrashers when I, when I first got to uh, got the Peoria it was the Atlanta Thrashers were the were the team in Chicago, and it's, it's changed a couple of times you know over the years, and, and they always. Uh, they always have a good product on the ice because they have uh, have made it a point to want to win championships, and so they take it a little bit more seriously, I think, than some of the other franchises do around the league. So you knew you were always in for a tough game when you showed up in Chicago, or at least in Rosemont. Yeah, and that's and that's that's what I've heard from working with the Wolves and just seeing them evolve, going from a fan to a broadcaster, from a child to a young adult. Really, really, just understanding the the product differential between some of these AHL teams, and I think you hit the nail on the head, Brendan, when you're talking about these teams that are playing each other six, seven, eight times a year and are just, the the tension is building and you can just cut it with a knife in the arena, even without fans. Yeah, you know, it's, it's uh, I wonder what the lack of fans would do to the intensity of the game. And I think the bubble kind of answered that, where those guys were, were playing for a championship and, and it didn't lack intensity. But, um, you know, I've actually been impressed with you know, momentum swings and different little caveats of the game where um, even without fans, those things still happen. Uh, you know, I did actually the Blackhawks-Predators game where the Blackhawks came back last week from down three goals in the third period. And, you know, Nashville called timeout after uh, a couple of quick goals from Chicago. And you're like, okay, did you really need that? Because there's no crowd to settle down. There's really nothing. Right. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, just, it felt different because normally – that's where you go, all right, you take your time out. Hopefully the crowd will calm down a little bit. Your guys can get settled and go. Uh, but still using those same tactic, tactics. And then it didn't matter. The, the fans weren't the factor that got the Blackhawks over the hump there. You know, it came internally. And I think that's a really cool thing to see is that those teams, these teams do have that internal drive, that competition, and, and that edge you know, regardless of whether or not they're playing in an empty building or not. And that's so important because if you're only being fed off of the crowd and not your inner self and your inner drive, then if the, if the fans are having a bad night, if they don't show up as much, or if your team's not doing too well, but you're having a good performance, how are you going to translate that onto the ice? Yeah, and, and, and you know, and, and everybody thinks, oh, well, the Blackhawks would definitely benefit from 20,000 people at the United Center. It, both teams benefit from that. Right. So let's not, let's be honest about it. You know, the energy in the building, home or road, even if they're cheering against you rather than for you, um, it, it, it can't help but get you a little jacked up when you're when you're playing at the United Center in front of 20,000 people. And that was the thing. I'm doing that game, and, and, and the Blackhawks are coming roaring back, and they get a tie, and, and the one thing that just stopped 
with me is, boy, this should be absolutely bananas in this building right now. And it's quiet. It's quiet because there's there's nobody in there. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful that we've been able to figure out a way to have a hockey season um, and, and also at the same time very much looking forward to when we can get back to these full buildings again. Yeah, it's 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 a blast. I, I remember, you know, talking to Jake Ottinger a couple weeks ago about his time in college. You know, he said, you know, you went into some hostile buildings, but even the negative energy, he turned into positive energy. And I think that's something that you really have to understand it from a player's point of view. Yeah, I mean that's 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 spot on. It's just a, it's it's something they have to have to always remember. Yeah, so I want to go back to a particular game you broadcast uh, with the Islanders, February twenty eighth, twenty nineteen. John Tavares is returned to Long Island. Um, I want to talk to you about how the environment was different uh, from other games from a broadcaster's point of view, and what extra preparation did you do for that game? Well, I'll tell you what; it was the most well attended warm ups I've ever seen um, in my time in, in hockey. I mean, everybody was was in the building and ready to go for the second that he stepped back on the ice at the Coliseum, and uh, and and normally it's fans that are, are crowded around the Islanders half of the ice and trying to get pucks and show signs and whatnot. Um, but certainly, most of the intensity and attention um, was surrounding that entrance to where the Maple Leafs walked out of the ice and where John Tavares ultimately did. Um, but it was it was a, it was another level in there, um, just because of the the, the sheer emotion. You know, it was it was a difficult time for Islanders fans. Um, you know, when he left, he was he was the first guy to really do this. Where you've got a number one uh, pick walk out the door for nothing when he, um, you know, at least in in, in his front facing interviews, said nothing about the fact that he would ever consider leaving Long Island, and then to have him, you know, leave for his hometown in Toronto, it, it was it was a sting. It was a sting for for the fans, and and they were rightfully upset. And yeah. so when he came back, they wanted to make sure he understood that and. Then just the way the game progressed, is it went from obviously the warm-ups uh, into the game, and then the Islanders scored and then scored and then scored again, and all of a sudden they've got six goals, and then it was just fun for the fans to just kind of you know gloat in the fact that not only were they winning that game, um, but the Islanders were having a heck of a season, and they would obviously go on um, you know to win a round of the playoffs that year where everybody picked them to finish last, and they they had more points than the Maple Leafs in the standings, and it was uh, it was it was certainly an interesting time for Islander fans, and, and certainly is still to a certain extent every time the Islanders and Maple Leafs play. And that's that's really what I get gather from it because you know like just talking with guys like Patrick Sharp who left Chicago uh, not of their own accord but to go to another team. But when you're talking about John Tavares in a different in a completely different situation where it, it kind of was like the rug was pulled out from under you, if you will. Um, it's it's a whole it's a whole different atmosphere. The atmosphere of like you know, remember the good times is flipped on its head. Like how how could this happen in a sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the biggest thing for Islander fans was that you know whether or not, and, and we'll never really know what happened behind the scenes, but whether or not uh, it happened or not, John Tavares either convinced uh, Garth Snow or ownership or both that he shouldn't be traded the season before. I mean, the Islanders missed playoffs. Uh, the season before he left, and and were were you know really not in it, and for whatever reason they didn't trade him. I mean they could have gotten a king's ransom for John Tavares on his way out the door, but the decision was made to keep him because they truly believed that he was going to sign back with the Islanders during the off season. So um, it's one thing to have him have left; it's another thing to have your most valuable asset walk out the door and basically leave the team for dead. Right, like mm-hmm. the Islanders didn't really have the opportunity to benefit from his departure at all. All it was was that their best player had left, and now they were left picking up the pieces. So I think that's part of the reason why is that um, you know whatever happened behind. 
behind the scenes led to the fact that he was not traded before the deadline in the 17-18 season and just kind of set the stage for, for what transpired that summer. Yeah, obviously some very raw emotions. Keeping with the Islanders, Brendan, you know, Barry Trotz has come in from D.C., obviously completely transformed the Islanders. How have you seen that go on from your view inside the booth? It's, it's been incredible. I mean, the, the numbers themselves kind of tell you the stories that the Islanders that last season, that 17-18 season under, under Doug Waite, you know, the Islanders gave up more goals than any team in the NHL had in the previous 10 years. And then Barry Trotz comes in and shaves 100 goals off the total, and the Islanders win the Jennings Trophy as the league's fewest goals allowed, you know, between their two goaltenders, which that year were Robin Leonard and Thomas Grice. Um, and it was basically the same roster minus John Tavares. So um, it was it was very, a very tangible way to quantify coaching because it was the same players. And so he came into a team, like I said, that had given up so many goals the year before that he came into a captive audience. They were willing and ready and waiting for the right person to come in and deliver the right message, and he got immediate buy-in. And so, um, yeah, there were some growing pains early on in that season that, that didn't go well. Um, but in November, they started a 17-game point streak, and they went 15-0-2 over a 17-game stretch, and nothing reinforces you know, teachings like having success. And so they finally got to the game that he was preaching, uh, finally you know, understood all the details of it, and then immediately were rewarded with an incredible run through the standings. And, and from that moment on, it, there's been no question that they've played a Barry Trotz type of system, and it's, it's evolved. I think that at, at early points, he had sacrificed offense for defense, they built a team strong five on five, and yeah, they had to win some games two to one or one to nothing. Um, you know, very rarely were they beating teams six to five, and that was a good thing for them. And now, I think now in year three under Barry Trotz, we're starting to see the combination where uh, the defensive side of the puck is just natural to them now, and they understand their responsibilities, and it enables them to kind of freelance a little bit more in the offensive zone. And right, and right now the Islanders, they're they're not an elite offensive team. They're still elite defensive team. They're still, you know, second best in the NHL in terms of goals against average. Uh, but they're they're a middle of the pack offensive team that can that can you know throw their weight around when they need to offensively. And that's and that's something I've seen. I mean, when you're talking about what Barry Trotz did, the goal differential is something that I was going to bring up. If you didn't, uh, just the like you said, the sheer numbers. Just, just going from it's, it's almost like a the precursor to the St. Louis Blues in twenty nineteen, if you will. Obviously, not winning the Stanley Cup, but still that same kind of the 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 point change from almost worst to first, if you will. Yeah, I mean, coaching matters. It, it really does. I think a lot of people just go, "Well, he just stands behind the bench." I mean, that's it, it's 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 a big deal. Um, and, and of course, the players obviously they have to execute, but they have to buy in. They have to be open to it. Um, you know, a guy like Matt Barzell, who had won the Calder Trophy and in eighty-five points, you know, as a rookie under Doug Wade, all of a sudden had to learn a brand new way to play the game, and his points dropped. Mm-hmm. His points dropped significantly from his first year to his second year, and they've never gotten back uh, to where he was when he wasn't concerned about the defensive side of the puck. So, um, you know, it takes a special group of players to be able to recognize that and buy in. And I, and I think John Tavares leaving was part of that, where there was no default superstar. There was no, well, he's, he's, he's going to, you know, come in and score all the goals and we'll be fine. It was, you know what, if we're going to win, we're going to have to win as a team and as a group. And so everybody bought in. And the one thing that, you know, people need to understand about Barry Trotz um, and you'll hear the same thing from the people in Nashville, and you'll hear the same thing from the people in D.C. 
he's a good person. He's a good human being, um, and he's a guy you enjoy being around, and he's a guy that I would imagine you'd want to play for because of who he is, not necessarily as a coach, but as a person. And so I think that has gone a long way with this group, and, and one of the reasons why they have such a tight-knit group, and one of the reasons why you know they were as successful as they were last year in the bubble, making it to Game 6 of the Eastern Conference Final, was because the team that was stuck with just themselves for months on end in a hotel, they made it work, and they made it fun, and they had ping-pong tournaments, and they, they just enjoyed being around one another, where if they didn't have that component, it would have been really hard to keep pushing and keep winning games and keep extending your stay inside that quarantine bubble. Right, and it's almost like if we're going uh, looking outside of hockey for football, uh, the 1972 Miami Dolphins, uh, the no-name defense, there wasn't one real big star on the, the Islanders team per se, but they all banded together and made a huge run. Yeah, no, exactly right. And, and the Islanders are still built like that. You know, they haven't gone out and, and replaced, you know, John Tavares' salary with a, with a $10 million guy. Uh, they, they've just kind of signed complimentary pieces and tried to keep this core together. And obviously they've had to, to pay some people in Anders Lee and Matt Barzell, um, you know, some decent raises. But, uh, you know, they're, they're still built that way, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Yeah, going into the future of the Islanders, you know, we recently talked with a prospect going through the pipeline, hoping you could shed a little more light on him, what the Islanders can expect from him. Uh, Bodie Wild uh, played some of his youth hockey out in Chicago with the Chicago Mission. What are you expecting to see out of him as he moves up the ranks? Well, you know, it, it, it'll be, uh, I guess time will tell with Bodie Wild. I think that he's uh, he's obviously one of the top prospects in terms of being a high draft pick, but he's got some work to do, um, and, and, and there's not a lot of spots right now on the Islanders' D. So, um, you know, Noah Dobson is their prize prospect defensively, and he's um, obviously on the active roster right now. They've got, you know, an Andy Green who's signed, who's 38 years old, so there's going to be, you know, potentially an opening. Um, but I think that, you know, the fact that he's down in Bridgeport and he's working on his game, um, you know, that, that's a good thing for him. You know, the American Hockey League is a great league, and the way they treat it, the way most NHL teams treat it, is they play the same systems down in the AHL as they do in the NHL. Um, and if he can keep learning and keep progressing, you know, he should have a shot here at some point, you know, to make an impact on the NHL roster. But he's not on the taxi squad. Sebastian Ajo and, and Thomas Hickey are on the taxi squad ahead of him. So he's still got some, uh, some work to do in terms of getting himself, you know, closer to the NHL level. Um, but I still think they have high hopes for what Bodie Wild can do. Yeah, a big, strong defenseman with a scoring touch. That's how I saw him. And just, again, the high hopes are there for Bodie Wild, and we wish him nothing but the best. Brendan, before we head out today, is there anything else you want to add for our listeners around the U.S., Canada, and beyond? No, I mean, I hope uh, I hope everybody's enjoying the hockey season. It's a, it's a unique one. I don't think we'll see anything like it again. Hopefully we won't see anything like it again, but it's still... Uh, it's still been fun to be a part of, and, and hopefully I'm, I'm not alone in a lot of these buildings moving forward. Hopefully everybody gets back in and join me. Let's hope a lot of people get back into the buildings. Brendan Burke, voice of the New York Islanders. Brendan, thank you so much for the time. All right, thanks, Frank.